Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 76 Allen versus Cooper. This is a United States Supreme Court case. From just about two weeks ago, opinion was issued March 23rd, 2020. And get this now, it deals with pirates, sovereign immunity, stare decisis, precedent, enumerated powers, all of the stuff in the Constitution, and most exciting of all, copyright. This is pretty sexy stuff. It also deals with one of the worst ideas lawyers resort to, the notion of legislative history. I've discussed my disdain for that before, and we'll go over it at least a little bit again here because the court does. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app, and just go to speakeasyideas.com slash the law for a list of these podcasts, and when you're on your app provider, just search for Speakeasy Ideas and subscribe. You can follow this podcast on social media on Twitter at the law DKW and on Facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you. If you're so inclined, you know, like, share, review, all of that. I'm available for speaking engagements. If you want me to come talk to one of your groups, I'd love to consult, teach, anything like that. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you feel like contributing to our work here at The Law with D.K. Williams via a sponsorship. We would love that. And the name participants in this case are Frederick Allen. He is or was, probably still is, associated with a company called Nautilus Productions that was hired by the state of North Carolina to document by photos and video the reclamation of Edward Teach's pirate ship, Edward Teach is more commonly known as Blackbeard. His ship was the Queen Anne's Revenge. Mr. Allen did this over like a decade, videoing and taking pictures of this process. He copyrighted his work, but then the state of North Carolina used his work on the state website in violation of Allen's copyright. And that is what started this lawsuit. The other name is Roy Cooper, who really has nothing to do with the actions that led to the lawsuit, the copyright violations, but he's the current governor of North Carolina, so his name goes on the case. This was a 9-0 unanimous Supreme Court decision against Allen and against his right to sue the state of North Carolina for copyright infringement. The majority opinion was written by Elena Kagan. We've gone over the current Supreme Court justices a couple times, but let's just hit a couple of their program highlights. She was nominated by Obama in 2010, so she's been on the court 10 years. She's 59 years old right now, so she's probably going to be around for at least another couple more decades. She was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, who was nominated by W in 2005 to be the Chief Justice. He was never an Associate Justice. He got nominated to be the Chief Justice straight from the D.C. Circuit. Now, in my mind, it seems like that might be kind of awkward to name someone directly to the Supreme Court as the Chief Justice. Now, it's been done before, and it was done here. Roberts replaced William Rehnquist when Rehnquist passed away at the age of 80. But compare Roberts being nominated directly to the Chief Judge slot with Rehnquist, who had been an Associate Justice before he was named Chief Justice by Reagan. So Rehnquist was originally nominated to the court in 72 by Nixon, and then in 86, Reagan nominated him to be the Supreme Court Chief Justice. 
That makes sense because, you know, to be an associate justice first, learn your way around, then get bumped up to chief justice. But not Roberts. George W. Bush put him right in that chief justice slot. W. could have nominated one of the sitting justices he liked, Thomas maybe or Scalia, to that Supreme Court justice position and just put Roberts on the bench as an associate. And I see the political reasons to do what W. did. Roberts is right now 65 years old, so he has over a decade left probably. Scalia has already passed away and Thomas is 71. So if you point someone younger to that chief justice slot, on average, your guy and guy in this context means person, will be in that position longer. Still being on the court for 20 years and then some new guy comes in and becomes your boss might be a little awkward in the break room, but that might make a good sitcom on Netflix. I might have to pitch that to him. Also on this six-person majority, Samuel Alito, who was nominated by W back in 06. He is now 70 years old. Sonia Sotomayor, nominated by Obama in 2009, so 11 years ago. She's 65, got a long term left ahead of her. If the actuarial tables hold up, Neil Gorsuch, also in the majority, nominated by Trump in 17. He's 52, so he might be around three decades, who knows. And Brett Kavanaugh, nominated by Trump also, took the bench in 18. He's 55, so he'll be around as well, probably. So the majority opinion here was written by a Democratic appointee, joined by another Democratic appointee, and three Republican appointees. So again, Political appointments rarely come into play in these cases, and when they do, that's when the press makes a huge deal out of it, and of course, abortion is one of those times. The remaining three justices concurred in the judgment, so they agreed in the outcome, but they wrote separately to express their different rationale. Clarence Thomas wrote separately, who is now 71 years old. He's been on the court since 1991 when H.W. Bush appointed him. So he joined in most of the opinion, but wrote separately what they call concurring in part and concurring in the judgment. Because he wrote separately about the concept of precedent, which he sometimes does, the value of stare decisis and when the court should overturn it. And we'll talk about what he said. And I agree with him. Also concurring in the judgment was Stephen Breyer, who was nominated by Clinton in 1994. He's currently 81 years old. He was joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was also nominated by Clinton, but the year before Breyer in 93. She's the eldest justice currently on the bench at 87 years old. Now, they questioned the precedent upon which the court based its decision, but acknowledged that precedent controlled even if they disagreed with that case upon which this case was decided. So what did the court say? We'll start off with how Kagan lays it out. She says, in two basically identical statutes passed in the early 90s, Congress sought to strip the states of their sovereign immunity from patent and copyright infringement suits. Not long after this, this court, the Supreme Court, held in a 1999 case, we'll refer to as Florida prepaid, that the patent statute lacked a valid constitutional basis. Today, we take up the copyright statute. We find that our decision in Florida prepaid, which dealt with the patents, compels the same conclusion in this case, which is copyrights. The statutes were almost identical, and they had the same purpose, to abrogate sovereign immunity of the states so that if they violated someone's patent right or copyright, that they could be sued. Because that before that, and now, because of the ruling in this decision, they can violate patent rights and copyrights, and they can't be sued in federal court. And let's use the Constitution as our actual starting point for the discussion, because Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 in this case, of the Constitution grants Congress the actual legitimate enumerated power to, quote, promote the progress of science 
and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That's an actual enumerated power. We call it the intellectual property clause because that's what it's dealing with, even though those those words are not used in the Constitution. Actually a legit constitutional power of Congress to issue patents, trademarks, and copyrights. As Kagan mentions in the opinion, Congress wanted intellectual property owners to be able to sue states. That's what Congress wanted to do when they passed a statute at issue here in the 90s, just like they can sue private entities. So if an individual person has a copyright, somebody violates that copyright, there's a body of law where you can sue to stop that infringement and perhaps get damages if there are any. The issue here is that states have sovereignty and sovereigns, going back to this divine right of kings, this common law stuff from centuries ago, sovereigns can't be sued by mere subjects, or they can't be sued at all, really. After all, the history goes, if the king was put there by God, how can the king do anything wrong? And if the king can't do anything wrong, he can't be sued for doing something wrong, right? It just makes sense. That notion, while it has been abrogated to an extent, still exists. It still applies, and it still applies in this actual case we're talking about, Allen versus Cooper. And because it still does, the issue before the court in this case is, does this particular federal statute concerning intellectual property, which is a legit power, of the federal government in the Constitution, does that statute trump, in essence, state sovereignty? Or was this attempt to abrogate state sovereignty and make states subject to suit constitutionally illegitimate? That's the argument. The court here says it is illegitimate. The congressional statute does not pass constitutional muster. And Frederick Allen, the guy who took the videos underwater of the pirate ship, can't sue the state of North Carolina for violating his copyright. Now, he could sue you for it. He could sue me for it. He could sue McDonald's or Amazon or Apple for it. But he cannot sue the state of North Carolina for it because of sovereign immunity. So let's let Justice Kagan lay out some of the backstory here, some of the history. She writes, In 1717, the pirate Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard, arg, captured a French slave ship in the West Indies and renamed her Queen Anne's Revenge. The vessel became his flagship, carrying some 40 cannons and 300 men, The revenge took many prizes as she sailed around the Caribbean and up the North American coast. But her reign over those seas was short-lived. In 1718, just the year after he got the ship, the ship ran aground on a sandbar a mile off Beaufort, North Carolina. Blackbeard and most of his crew escaped without harm. Not so the revenge. She sank beneath the waters where she lay undisturbed for nearly 300 years. So the ship sank off the coast of Beaufort, North Carolina. Now, there is a city with the exact same spelling in South Carolina, but there it's pronounced Beaufort. I'm here to let y'all know this important stuff. Beaufort, North Carolina, Beaufort, South Carolina, spelled the same. Kagan goes on. In 96, a marine salvage company named Intersol, Inc., discovered the shipwreck. Under federal and state law, the wreck belongs to North Carolina, but the state contracted with Intersol, the corporation, to take charge of the recovery activities. They contracted out the job, right? Intersol, in turn, retained petitioner Frederick Allen, a local videographer, who I guess could scuba as well, to document the operation. For over a decade, Allen created videos and photos of divers' efforts to salvage the revenge's guns, anchors, and other remains. He registered copyrights in all those works. All right, so far so good. Got no problems. But then this suit arises from North Carolina's publication of some of Allen's videos and photos. Allen first protested in 2013, 
that the state was infringing his copyrights by uploading his work to its website without permission. To address that allegation, North Carolina agreed to a settlement paying Allen $15,000 and laying out the party's respective rights to the materials. Basically, henceforth, this is what we're going to do. So North Carolina paid Allen for his work at that time. Should figure it out the issue, right? It did not. Kagan goes on. Allen and the state soon found themselves embroiled in another dispute. Allen complained that North Carolina had impermissibly posted five of his videos online and used one of his photos in a newsletter. When the state declined to admit wrongdoing, this time anyway, Allen filed this action in federal district court. It charges the state with copyright infringement, call it a modern form of piracy, that's Kagan said that, not me, and seeks money damages. Okay, normally this would be pretty straightforward. The question is, did North Carolina violate Allen's copyrights? But we don't even get to that because that vestige of the divine right of kings, sovereign immunity, comes into play. Kagan goes on, North Carolina moved to dismiss the suit on the ground of sovereign immunity. It invoked the general rule that federal courts cannot hear suits brought by individuals against non-consenting states. But Allen responded that an exception to the rule applied because Congress had abrogated the state's sovereign immunity from suits like his. And that is definitely what Congress wanted to do in the statute that he is suing under. Allen's right. Congress passed this Copyright Remedy Clarification Act of 1990, pursuant to its enumerated and legit power to issue patents, copyrights, etc., protect intellectual property in general, and specifically removed that state's sovereignty in copyright cases. They'd also done it in patent cases in another statute. That statute, Kagan says, provides that a state shall not be immune under the 11th Amendment or any other doctrine of sovereign immunity from suit in federal court for copyright infringement. And the act, the court goes on, written by Kagan, specifies that in such a suit, a state will be liable and subject to remedies in the same manner and to the same extent as a private party. Sounds pretty clear, right? That should resolve the issue in Allen's favor. Congress said states can be sued in this case, but it does not, according to the Supreme Court, and they eventually rule in North Carolina's favor and against Allen. Now, as a policy matter, I completely agree with what Congress was attempting to do here. Why should states be exempt from copyright infringement suits when no one else is exempt? As Breyer says in his concurrence with the outcome, joined by RBG, that a state should not be able to open a movie theater and start showing pirated versions of The Lion King or Lord of the Rings or The Godfather or whatever, right? Yet that is the result here. A state could do that and not be subject of copyright violation lawsuit. Now, they aren't likely to do that, of course, but they did virtually the same thing on a smaller scale here to Allen. We get into some weedy stuff. You know, we get into the weeds. The Supreme Court discusses. It's an earlier decision upon which it bases this decision. And a decision before that, the kind of a domino effect here. But a 1999 decision of the Supreme Court, Florida prepaid, which within the patent context, Congress wanted to abrogate state sovereign immunity when it came to patent violations. And the Supreme Court said... That was unconstitutional. Congress can't abrogate that sovereign immunity this way because even though they have the enumerated power to issue and regulate intellectual property, that power did not trump sovereign immunity. That's what they say. And since the court made that decision regarding patents in Florida prepaid in 99, they have to come to the same rationale or same conclusion here in 2020 involving copyrights. Now, the majority, and even Thomas in his concurrence says, maybe we were wrong back then. Maybe. I'm not saying we were. Maybe. Maybe we were wrong in Florida prepaid. But we weren't that wrong. 
And stare decisis, which is the concept of precedent. Once we rule on something, that's the rule. There's differing of opinions when you can overcome that. But that's the basic rule. We've decided it. It's decided. And they say, well, we're bound to do the same thing here. Allen argues that, yeah, y- y'all probably should overrule Florida prepaid, but you don't have to. Because we're also arguing, Allen says, our due process rights under the 14th Amendment, which y'all didn't have to decide the same way in Florida prepaid. Now, the court ultimately rejects that because they say the 14th Amendment prohibits states from violating rights protected under the Constitution. Again, not constitutional rights, as we've repeatedly mentioned, because the Constitution grants no rights. It just says the federal government may not infringe upon rights you already have. But since the 14th Amendment prohibits the states from violating rights protected under the Constitution, and the Supreme Court says copyrights aren't such rights. Follow me here if you can. You have a natural right protected by the First Amendment to free speech. It's not granted by the First Amendment, but that right is protected by the First Amendment. States cannot violate that right under the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment gives Congress, the federal government, power to make sure the states don't. And as a quick aside, this is the doctrine of incorporation, whereby the theory goes and what the Supreme Court holds. The 14th Amendment applies different aspects of the Bill of Rights to the states, because originally it did not apply to the states at all, only applied to the federal government. Supreme Court has dealt with those on a case-by-case basis, and there's a body of thought out there that says the 14th Amendment didn't have anything to do or didn't try to incorporate the Bill of Rights, just acknowledging that it exists, but that's not what the Supreme Court says and hasn't. For our purposes here, we're just discussing the Supreme Court's rationale in this decision. So, 14th Amendment says that states cannot violate, for example, your First Amendment right, and Congress can pass a law that keeps states from doing that. But that copyrights aren't a natural right, in essence. So the 14th Amendment doesn't keep states from violating them. So let's look at the actual language of the 14th Amendment in pertinent part. Section 1 says, no state shall make or enforce any law. Again, no state. Until this provision, most of the Constitution had nothing to do with reigning states in. Now they do after the Civil War. So no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And in context, that means slaves and former or children of former slaves and freedmen. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property because copyrights are property or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Then Section 5 says, Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. So copyrights are a property right. And again, I'm just going to briefly acknowledge some libertarians argue that intellectual property is not really a property right. We'll save that discussion for another time, maybe. For our purposes, the Constitution, Supreme Court anyway, has recognized it as a property right. Allen is arguing that states, North Carolina in this case, cannot deprive him of his property right— cannot infringe on his copyright without due process of law and that he has not been provided that process and cannot ever be provided process if North Carolina is immune from being sued in federal court and that the congressional statute allowing him to do it is legit under the 14th Amendment. Otherwise, they can just deprive him of his property, violate his copyright with impunity. The court rejects the argument. Basically, they say, yeah, you got a natural right to speech, but you do not have a natural right to keep someone else from using your pictures which is what a copyright is in this case, or, or videos. So I know this is kind of esoteric. Congress, pursuant to the Constitution, can pass a statute that attempts to protect you from someone else using your pictures, the copyright stuff, 
But when it doesn't have to, Congress has the authority to do it, but they're not required to do it. It's like declaring war. Congress has the authority to declare war, but they don't have to. So they have the authority to issue copyrights, but they don't have to. And two, if they do offer some copyright protection, which they have, they can change it at any time. So you don't really, it's not a constitutional right. It's just a statutory construction that Congress can pass to make things easier. But they can't prohibit states from doing it. So the court says the 14th Amendment only applies to constitutional rights. Again, rights protected by the Constitution. So the 14th Amendment only applies to those things, but it doesn't apply to protect copyrights. Congress can't abrogate state sovereignty of North Carolina when it comes to copyright violations. So Allen loses. He can't sue North Carolina in federal court for a copyright violation, not under Article 1, Section 8, because Congress has the legitimate authority to issue copyrights and set up law around copyrights and intellectual property in general, and not under the 14th Amendment either. So originally, the district court, the trial level, agreed with Allen, but the Fourth Circuit, which is the intermediary court between the trial court and the Supreme Court that covers North Carolina, Fourth Circuit did not agree with Allen, and the Supreme Court didn't agree with Allen either. Some of the court's discussion to get to that conclusion, the court says, a Section 5 abrogation, that's Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, that's part that says Congress can pass laws to enforce the rest of the 14th Amendment, the Fourth Circuit explained, must be congruent and proportional to the 14th Amendment injury it seeks to remedy. This is why people hate lawyers for the, the, how they write. But what is congruent and proportional? How is that helpful? How is that a helpful standard? What is congruent and proportional I submit is probably more appropriately for the legislature to decide. Court has given itself far too much responsibility in this and other cases to weigh competing interests when that is precisely what the legislature has the power to do and is supposed to do. Separation of powers is taking a hit in this type of thing. So courts can say if particular legislative act is constitutional or not, but having it depend on the weighing of policy options or trade-offs or looking into the rationale and the reasoning of Congress, that's not what it should be doing. It shouldn't be looking at policy options and how good a reason you have that Congress has for doing something. But they are. Kagan for the court discusses sovereign immunity, she says, and this is important for people to know. In our constitutional scheme, a federal court generally may not hear a suit brought by any person against a non-consenting state. So a state can abrogate its own sovereign immunity. But the federal legislature, Congress, can't make a state subject to such a suit. Kagan says, first, each state is a sovereign entity in our federal system. That's absolutely true statement. That's awesome. But how many statists, how many modern people would be appalled at that notion? What, each state is a sovereign entity? That's crazy. A whole hell of a lot of people believe that. These people just assume, and they wish it were so, that the states were just mere subdivisions of the federal government. But they're not. Some seem to think that the feds have absolute control over the states. If the feds tell a state to do something, they have to do it, right? How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, well, the federal law is the rule of the land, law of the land. States can't do anything about it. Well, that's wrong. And this case is pointing that out. It demonstrates that. Each state is sovereign. A progressive, with air quotes, justice appointed by Obama is saying that. And none of the nine justices take issue with that. That's like an, a, a foundational constitutional block that everyone accepts, except people in the media and other people that fail to get what they want done in the legislature. Then they turn to the, the court systems and they try to make states do things as if they're mere political subdivisions of the federal government. And yeah, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. No doubt. And I tweeted this out. So you can follow me on Twitter for gems like this. 
Constitution, supreme law of the land. And that supreme document supremely says the federal government can only do certain specific things. The supreme law doesn't say the feds can do whatever the supreme hell they want and states must comply. It's not what it says. The Supreme Court says Congress cannot make the states amenable to copyright lawsuits, at least not in this particular statute. And I can't help but note the irony. Y'all know what I feel about Wickard v. Filburn, which we talked about in episode five, how the Supreme Court there enabled Congress to make states and individuals do things that are not among the legitimate enumerated powers. And here's a case where the Supreme Court says Congress can't do something regarding an actually legitimate enumerated power, the authority to issue copyrights. So they're limiting an actually enumerated power while they've expanded powers that aren't enumerated at all. I'll just note the irony. Kagan also says, It is inherent in the nature of sovereignty not to be amenable to a suit absent consent. So again, you can waive, a state can waive its consent. But unless they do, they can't be sued. This court, the U.S. Supreme Court, she says, has permitted a federal court to entertain a suit against a non-consenting state on two conditions. First, Congress must have enacted unequivocal statutory language abrogating the state's immunity from suit. And everyone agrees Congress did that here. They specifically wanted to make states susceptible to copyright suits. But there's another condition. Second, she writes, some constitutional provision must allow Congress to have thus encroached on the state's sovereignty. Not even the most crystalline abrogation, she says, can take effect unless it is a valid exercise of constitutional authority. She goes on, the contested question is whether Congress had authority to take that step. In this case, Allen maintains that it did under either of two constitutional provisions. He first points to the clause in Article I, empowering Congress to provide copyright protection. If that fails, he invokes Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, like we mentioned, which authorized Congress to enforce the commands of the Due Process Clause. Neither, Kagan writes for the court, contention can succeed. Court then discussed this Florida prepaid case and how it controls while kind of acknowledging, kind of, it might have been wrong, but not wrong enough to overturn here. Well, that case was patent, Here, too, she writes, the power to secure an intellectual property owner's exclusive right under Article I stops when it runs into sovereign immunity. So Allen argues, trying to distinguish Florida prepaid, that another Supreme Court case did allow non-consenting states to be subject to federal law. It was a bankruptcy proceeding. Another legitimate Article I, Section 8 enumerated powers is bankruptcy laws. But the court in this case spends a few pages explaining why that case involving bankruptcy is completely different and does not apply to intellectual property cases. So that case was from 2006. So these aren't like real old cases, right? In the past couple decades. That one was Central Virginia Community College versus Katz. We'll just call it Katz. Kagan says about that case, in bankruptcy, we decided sovereign immunity has no place. But everything in Katz is about and limited to the bankruptcy clause. The opinion reflects what might be called bankruptcy exceptionalism. In part, Katz rested on the singular nature of bankruptcy jurisdiction. So they're saying, hey, yeah, we allowed non-consenting states to be sued there, but that's bankruptcy and it's all by itself. It doesn't apply here. I find the distinction unconvincing. She goes on for the court. The framers' primary goal in adopting the bankruptcy clause was to address that problem, to stop competing sovereigns, the different states, from interfering with a debtor's discharge and bankruptcy. And in that project, the framers intended federal courts to play a leading role. So that's how she's distinguishing bankruptcy. Yet the framers wanted the federal government to take the leading role with intellectual property as well. I am unconvinced. 
Yet, that's what we've got. She says, our decision in cats, in short, viewed bankruptcy as on a different plane, governed by principles all its own. They're distancing themselves from cats here. Then the court says, even if cats didn't control, Florida prepaid, together with stare decisis, because we've already decided it, would still doom Allen's argument. Stare decisis, which again is, uh, stare is like stare, S-T-A-R-E. That's the first Latin word. And then decisis, D-E-C-I-S-I-S, basically means a thing decided. This court has understood stare decisis is a foundation stone of the rule of law. To reverse a decision, we demand a special justification over and above the belief that the precedent was wrongly decided. So even if it was wrongly decided, that's not enough to overturn it. I and Clarence Thomas disagree with that. And that's why he writes separately. He says a special justification isn't necessary. And we'll get to his exact quote in a moment. So the court is saying, even if we agree with Allen here, Allen cannot overcome what we've already decided. Even if it was wrong, we've already decided it. In the 14th Amendment argument, the court notes that the 14th Amendment fundamentally altered the balance of state and federal power that the original Constitution and the 11th Amendment struck. Indeed, it did. The court says, for an abrogation statute, like the copyright statute Allen is arguing here, for that abrogation to mandate that states be subject to a copyright lawsuit, for it to be appropriate under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, it must be tailored to remedy or prevent conduct infringing the 14th Amendment's substantive prohibitions. Congress can permit suits against states for actual violations of the rights guaranteed in Section 1. I'm glad they said rights guaranteed and not granted because they do know the difference. Of course they do. Unfortunately, most of America does not. Constitution protects rights. It doesn't grant them. And a place you see that mistake quite often is in regards to the Second Amendment. People just think, hey, we can revoke the Second Amendment, right? Well, the Second Amendment doesn't grant the right to bear arms. It protects it. Then the court, back to Allen's argument, says a congressional abrogation, which is Congress making a state subject to a suit against its will. A congressional abrogation is valid under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment only if it sufficiently connects to conduct courts have held Section 1 to proscribe, like the freedom of speech, all right? The Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. Courts have applied those to the states because of the 14th Amendment, the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, etc. All of those things have been held to be applicable to the states via the 14th Amendment, but they haven't done that to copyright. And so that doesn't help Allen, according to the Supreme Court. And again here, but we've got this language, this Supreme Court language, only if it sufficiently connects. Again, who's going to decide what's sufficient? If the legislature decides it's sufficient, isn't that their job? Court says no, it's their job, at least in part. Legislative history rears its absurd head again. Court says... Courts, federal courts, are to consider the constitutional problem Congress faced, both the nature and the extent of state conduct violating the 14th Amendment. That assessment usually, though not inevitably, focuses on the legislative record, which shows the evidence Congress had before it of a constitutional wrong. Ugh, we've discussed that several times. This time I'll just say that. Here the court wants to determine if Congress had sufficient evidence to utilize its legislative power. And the judiciary is going to substitute its judicial judgment for the legislature's legislative judgment, and that's problematic at best. Court goes on. A critical question is how far and for what reasons Congress has gone beyond redressing actual constitutional violations. Again, the court is going to look into the reasons that Congress did something. That couldn't be more obvious second-guessing of the legislative process, subbing judicial judgment for the legitimate judgment of the legislature. Now, the Supreme Court does say, quote, Congress's conclusions on that score are entitled to much deference. 
end quote. Well, that's very nice of them. They're going to give them some deference, but they can still substitute their judgment, the court's judgment, for the legislative judgment. Specifically to Allen and his argument, Kagan writes for the court, when does the 14th Amendment care about copyright infringement? Copyrights are a form of property, and the 14th Amendment bars the states from depriving a person of property without due process of law. Under our precedent, however, a merely negligent act does not deprive a person of property, which in ordinary English, not legalese, that's absurd. If you negligently run over my bike and crush it, you have deprived me of that property. Then count in federal court. The court goes on. Florida prepaid, this other case that they're relying on, define the scope of unconstitutional infringement of a patent there, but it's the same argument with copyright. The scope of unconstitutional infringement as intentional conduct for which there's no adequate state remedy. Then the Supreme Court spends a couple of pages on the congressional testimony of one man named Ralph Oman. He was the register of copyrights at the time the statute was passed. He put together a report for Congress at their request. So the Supreme Court is really diving into what Oman said and his report. So this constitutional issue, which is based on the words of the Constitution, supposedly, is being decided by some guy's testimony during a congressional hearing before Congress actually passed a statute. I mean, that's absurd on his face. What does Ralph Oman have to do with whether or not something is constitutional? Well, the Supreme Court makes what he has to say relevant. The court gives some advice to Congress that they might be able to subject states to these intellectual property violations if they create a sufficient legislative record next time. If they get whoever the next Oman is to say the right things or have enough evidence, then maybe it'll work. Thomas specifically does not join that part of the opinion, saying it's not the court's job to advise Congress on hypothetical future legislation. I don't disagree with them. So in conclusion, the Supreme Court rules against Allen. He cannot sue the state of North Carolina for violating his copyrights. Court says Florida prepaid, the other case, all but pre-wrote our decision today. That precedent made clear that Article I's intellectual property clause, that clause could not provide the basis for an abrogation of sovereign immunity. And Florida prepaid held that Section 5 of the 14th Amendment could not support an abrogation on a legislative record, again, like the one here. For both those reasons, we affirm the judgment below of the Fourth Circuit, and Allen can't sue North Carolina. Thomas agrees with the outcome, but disagrees with the standard for overturning precedent for the respect due stare decisis, and I agree with him, and we've mentioned this in a handful of cases here at episodes of The Law. In this case, he says, and it's funny because he cites himself in other either dissents or concurrences, though he's just showing he's being consistent. Thomas, in his concurrence, says, the court, the Supreme Court majority, claims we need special justifications to overrule precedent because error alone cannot overcome stare decisis. That approach, Thomas says, does not comport with our judicial duty. If our decision in Florida prepaid were demonstrably erroneous, the court would be obligated to correct the error regardless of whether other factors support overruling the precedent. So no special justifications are needed, which is the phrase the majority uses. Allen did not demonstrate Florida prepaid was demonstrably erroneous, according to Thomas. Therefore, he agrees with the outcome. Breyer, with RBG in their concurrence, points out that this ruling would allow, like we mentioned, the state to open a theater and show pirated Walt Disney movies without any recourse, or Disney would have no recourse. They could show these pirated movies with impunity. He says that our sovereign immunity precedents can be said to call for so uncertain a voyage, I guess that's a pirate reference, so uncertain a voyage suggests that something is amiss. Indeed, we went astray, as I have consistently maintained. 
But, Breyer writes, recognizing that my long-standing view has not carried the day and that the court's decision in Florida prepaid controls this case, I concur in the judgment. So I'm with Breyer and RBG, but the rest of the court is not. So Breyer, RBG, and I don't win. And as more than one person has noted in discussing this case, what started out with the discovery of a pirate ship and Blackbeard's plunder ends with the state pirating its citizens' property. There you have it. That's what happened in this pirate case. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 76, Allen versus Cooper from just a few weeks ago. We dealt with stare decisis, state sovereignty, copyrights, the Constitution, and more than one pirate. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter, follow me at The Law DKW and Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. Let us know if you'd like me to come talk to one of your groups. I love doing that. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details. And until next week, avast, my friends. Freedom is dangerous. Arg. Live dangerously.